Well, tonight we are in Exodus chapter 4. If you'll turn there in your Bibles. And Lord, we do ask that you would open your word to us tonight to behold wondrous things, to hear all that you're saying to the church in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Well, last time we were together, we saw something rather interesting as we're understanding that, that, that we're seeing for the first time the nature of God. So if you look at the whole book of Genesis and all that God revealed of himself, it was very small in comparison. But now as we're heading into Exodus and through Moses, we are seeing things about the nature of God that are rather surprising. And of course, they're consistent because God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And this is what it is for us as believers to know God. Let the wise man, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, or the rich man in his strength, or the mighty man in his might, but glory in this, that you understand and know me. This is the glory of man, to, to understand the nature of God. We see the general revelation in creation, but the specific revelation comes only through his word. And so we saw there where um, God gave Moses in chapter 4 the final official command in verse 19 to go. And he said, with the rod of God in his hand, he went out. But then he makes him know there in verse 21, don't, I want you to understand that I am going to harden Pharaoh's heart, and he won't let the people go. I want you to understand that, that this is the plan. And uh, obviously, this didn't get through to Moses, as we're going to see tonight in this chapter, but God is, is as we're going to look here, Pharaoh hardens his heart, hardens his heart, hardens his heart. And then God says, okay, I'm going to confirm that hardness, and through your hardness, I'm going to display my nature that I am God and there is no other to all the peoples of the earth. And so, but then he says something interesting in verse 23, um, or excuse me, verse 22, and this is where we pick up tonight. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I swore to you, let my son go that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed, I will kill your son, your firstborn. So this is interesting that God says, the nation of Israel to me is my firstborn male child. And you got to understand in this uh, culture, uh, that was about as high as you could get uh, in your father's house to be the firstborn male. And he said, that's who Israel is to me. And so when you go to Pharaoh, I want him to understand that I'm God. There is no other. But I also want him to understand that he's dealing with my firstborn child here. And if he doesn't let him go, then he needs to understand he's insulting my oldest child. And I'm going to be taking that very, very personally. And so, again, we're, we're seeing the heart of God. You know, as we come to the New Testament, we see the zeal of Jesus 
doing, bringing us salvation. Him enduring all the shame, bearing all our sin, going to the cross. It says his face was set like flint heading to Jerusalem to be crucified. Nothing was going to stop him. He was determined. It's because of, of his great love towards us. And so, again, we're seeing a very personal aspect God is giving relationally to these children of Israel. So, again, we looked last week, and I just want to do it again. You need to turn over there because there's a lot of scripture. But as we go in tonight, I want to look once again at Romans 9. Because this actually brings up this very issue, and it's going to be a predominant issue in understanding the nature of God in the book of Exodus. In Romans chapter 9, Verses 10 through 24. That whole chapter 9 is just a, a radical, powerful chapter. But it says, not only this, talking about Abraham and Isaac and Isaac versus Ishmael and all that, but also Rebekah, when she had conceived by the one man, even by her father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to the election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls, it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. And Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. So this is just a powerful thing that only God can do. Is he can see the beginning, he can see the end, and he can see everything in between. And everything is equally seen to him. And he is saying, yes, they're twins. Esau's born first, but I also see what's going to happen ultimately with the Edomites and their hatred towards Israel, and God wiped them out because of their wickedness. You can read in the book of Obadiah. But he just states as a matter of fact, hey, I, I, I'm telling you what I see, and looking without the difficulty of, of past, present, and future, seeing it all laid out before me, uh, I'm telling you, this is going to be the first and the middle and the end. I can see it. So he says in verse 14, what shall we say to this? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. So in, in essence, he's saying this. Does this take away man's personal responsibility? So if I'm born into this world and God saw me being a Jacob and I'm being blessed because I'm his child, did I do anything to earn that? No, I really didn't. But if I'm born into this world to be an Esau, and I'm a perfect Esau, should I be punished for that? Or should I be blessed that I was walking in obedience as a horrible, evil murderer? <laughs> and, and this is the question that's being asked. Are, are you knowing that God knows the beginning and the end, finding a perversion in God's way of thinking? Now, You've got to understand, we're just so limited in this. And, and when people try to do this, they always do end up with a very warped picture. Because we can only look to the past and we interpret it. And as you get older, you interpret it differently, don't you? You know, I look at my childhood and I interpreted it one way as a teenager and another way in my 20s, another way in my 30s. And another way, you know, you keep looking back and you realize, oh, that's why my parents did that. Now I get it. 
I, yeah, okay, I'm going to have to be a jerk uh, to my teenager now. Okay, I, I understand. They weren't a jerk. They were doing things right. I just didn't feel it at the time. And nor did I see it in my 20s, nor did I really get it in my 30s. But now that I'm in my 40s and I have kids that age, I, I realize you, you can't really be any, a parent any other way than that. Uh, but, but with God, he can, he can see it and, and, and understand just because God knows the future does not mean that God makes the future. Just because God knows the future does not mean God makes the future. And so Jacob has a free will and he eventually submitted his will to God and God was able to bless him. And we see now that God, even before Jacob was really submitted, God chose him. <laughs> even before Jacob was really submitted, God blessed him. Even when Jacob was still being a Jacob, God was with him and, and was working in spite of all his weaselness. And then after Jacob was submitted, the Lord could say, all right, here's Israel, one who's governed now by God. But Jacob could look back and go, man, when I was at my hill catchness, when I was the most weasel I had ever been in my life, I saw God's hand on my life. And God said, yep, that's right, because I saw your end and your middle and your beginning before you were born. And this is why. But yet I saw Esau would never submit to me. And that's why he didn't see my hand before <laughs> or any point in his life. Because he never was going to be a submitted person. And so, again, if you say, well, it just doesn't seem fair. Well, if you had the ability to know the future, could you not use that to your advantage? I mean, if you knew uh, you were getting ready to trip when you walk out the church tonight because you saw the future, would you still trip? Or would you say, I'm going to go take the other door? <laughs> I'm going to walk a little slower. I'm going to do something different. So I don't, of course you are. I mean, if you knew the football team was going to win, you, you would bet on the winner. I mean, you, you couldn't do otherwise. And so again here, he's saying, is there something wrong with God? And in verse 15 of Romans 9, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whomever I have compassion. So then, it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I've raised you up, that I may show my power in you, that my name may be declared in all the earth. So here we're talking about this very situation. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills, like Pharaoh, he hardens. Well, you say to me then, well, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? Here's his answer. Indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not, the powder have the, does not the potter have the power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? So you're, you're making a, a plate out of clay and the plate says hey I want to be a bull and you're looking at this thing going uh I'm, I'm not I'm not making a bull right now I'm making a plate well I'm not going to be your bull what would you do to that clay you just 
put it in a big lump, throw it over to the side, get another lump. And, and this is what he's saying. We are just a tiny piece of dirt. Like a flower, we're here for a very short time. Like a piece of grass, we, we last for a season. And we're on this little tiny piece of dirt called earth. <laughs> and there's a whole bunch of little pieces of dirt flying through space called the Milky Way galaxy, going through a universe we can't even measure. And here are you, this little tiny piece of speck on a little tiny piece of speck, feel like cat in the hat, you know? And you're going to say to the almighty God who created the universe, hey, I don't like the fact that you can know the future. <laughs> Since you know the future, I find you guilty, God. I mean, it's like, get a grip. Who, who do you think you are? You are a created being of God. And you're created for his pleasure. He can do what he wants, when he wants, how he wants. He's God. So then he asks the question. He does not say God is doing this. But in verse 22 of Romans 9, he says, What if God, doesn't say God does it. What if God wanted to show his wrath and make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath, prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory, on the vessels of mercy, this is the children of Israel, which he had prepared beforehand for glory. So he said, what if I allow a Pharaoh to come up and harden his heart that I could show my power through his hardness of heart to my children to make my glory known? Even, he says, also us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. So again, we just, we just sort of need to marvel at God and that he is not like man, as it says in Isaiah, that we can compare him. God's not a little smarter than us. <laughs> He's not a little more powerful than we are. He's not a little more intuitive than the average human. He's not a little smarter than Einstein, okay? I mean, who knows the mind of the Lord that we can instruct him? As high as the heavens are above the earth, so his ways are past our ways. And so we, we just need to come and just say, God's revealing himself. And what we're discovering is that God knows and he tells us in prophecy. Remember, he said to Abraham, Abraham, yes, you're going to have kids like I promised you, like the stars of the heavens, but they're going to end up in bondage for 400 years as slaves. But I'll bring them out eventually back to the promised land. That was Genesis 15, okay? Hundreds of years beforehand, God had already saw before any of them were born that Isaac would be born and his kids and... and uh, excuse me, yeah, Isaac, and then, um, why am I messing up here? Isaac and Jacob and Abraham, there we go, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Before Isaac was born, that's right, he said, Abraham, I, I see him. I, I, I don't only see just the one Isaac. I don't just see Jacob. I see their kids multiplying as the sands of the sea and the stars of the heavens. And before they're even born, I see them already for 400 years in bondage. 
So we, we just start to realize, wow, God really has things in his, in his control. Well, going back now to verse 24 here of Exodus 4, 24. It came to pass on the way at the encampment that the Lord met him and sought to kill him. This is one of these crazy stories. So Moses is officially going, heading towards Egypt. And all of a sudden, while he's sitting around the campfire there, the Lord shows up and is getting ready to kill Moses. Then Zephorah took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son and cast it at Moses' feet and said, Surely you are a husband of blood to me. So he let him go. Then he, she said, You are a husband of blood because of the circumcision. So this is one of those stories that you sort of scratch your head going, we have a little bit of information, really not enough to speculate in detail dogmatically what's going on here. But it was the amount of information God wanted us to have. But again, we're learning the nature of God here. If you, if you understand what's happening here is, is Moses' child was not circumcised, which is not a small thing. And he's going to go down and be a prophet for God with an uncircumcised child. And we discover that his Midianite wife, whose dad is a priest in Midian, probably had the first kid or two, I don't know, circumcised. But then it came down to it. She's like, I just am not into this Jewish custom of circumcision on the eighth day and cutting the foreskin. And it was a mess the last time we did it. You know, the kid got infected or he screamed for three days or I don't know what it was, but she says, I'm putting my foot down, Moses, and we're going to see that Moses was a very meek guy, and he, you know, he wasn't that way at 40, but the time we see him at 80, he, he just had no push left, and so if his wife pushed, he probably just said, okay, this is not right, I, I can't, I don't have the fortitude to argue with you, Sephora. You're going to win this battle, but, but it's not right. And he just had to commit it into the hands of God. And now they're heading down, and immediately as Moses is getting ready to die, Sephora knows exactly what's going on here. I've got to circumcise my son quickly or Moses is going to die. And then she does it, but she's bitter about it. She's like, there, there's the foreskin, throws it at him. And just said, my life with you, Moses, has been horrible. <laughs> In essence, I wish I never married you. As far as you and us and our kids, it's just a bloody business. It's a hurtful thing. We always come to this place, and, and it's just too hard. At this point, Zephora leaves him. She goes back home to daddy, and she won't come and meet him for quite some time. Again, Jethro brings her and says, hey, this isn't right. You guys need to be together. And eventually, Jethro, this priest of Midian, becomes a believer. And that'll be a wonderful story. But 
let's just, let's just understand that God's making something clear to us. First of all, I, I think that, that God sees right as right, and he sees wrong as wrong. But Jesus said, when you look at me, what are you going to find? You're going to find somebody lowly and gentle of heart. And so it's just not the nature of God to be shaking his finger at you and getting his big gavel saying, I'm going to judge you if you don't stop this. What, what do we learn in Romans 2? It's the loving kindness and tender mercy that brings us to repentance. The Lord is gently just knocking on the door of our heart. He's, he's gently whispering to us. His still, his, his gentle breeze is coming upon us with great conviction and telling us, hey, remember that story later with Elijah when he's wanting to see the presence of God. He, he goes to the mountain of power, Mount Sinai, where Moses got the law and he's up there. And, and what happens? The big giant earthquake comes and he runs out to the mouth of the cave and oh, God's not in the earthquake. <laughs> then the big hurricane comes. <laughs> blowing rocks everywhere, and he runs out there, and God's not in that. And then what happens? There's this gentle breeze. He's out at the mouth of the cave, and he collapses and falls on his face in the powerful presence of God. This is what we see. The Holy Spirit came on Jesus like a dove, and then he had power. And so understand that God has said what he has said, He's not going to change his mind. As you read through Genesis to Revelation, you can get God's heart clearly on any issue that pertains, as Peter says, all the scriptures have been given to us for life and godliness. God has told us his heart, whether it's on marriage, employment, raising kids, friendship. You can go right on down the list. The Bible has it there. It doesn't tell you how to tune up your car, <laughs> but anything relationally with man and with God, it's there. But if people are going to do what they're going to do, you know, I, you know, now that marijuana is legalized in California, you're, you're hearing all these Christians talking about the, the wonderful wonders of marijuana and it's not so bad after all. And, and, and uh, matter of fact, it's you know, got a lot of wonderful features to it and it's better than those pills the doctors give you. And, and, and you're going to hear this rhetoric until people say it enough, they're going to convince themselves and then they're going to be grieving over their raising their children in that craziness and, and they're going to suffer the consequences of this. But God's clear that he, he doesn't want anything in our bodies that would intoxicate us and, and be a false spirit leading us, period. Well, where does it say marijuana in the Bible? It doesn't say LSD or crack or cocaine or any of those. I mean, come on. What, is it, what does it say? It does use the word that the works of the flesh is sorcery. It's the word pharmacia. We got our word pharmacy from it. It says don't be drunk. The only thing they had at that time to be drunken on wasn't drugs at that time. It was alcohol. And he said don't be drunk. And, and the whole purpose 
is, is that very thing, to, to, to get high. And, and so, again, here, it's like, well, what's God's mind on this? You know what? If you know Christianity, and if you're wanting to be honest with yourself, you already know the mind of God on this subject. But you're trying to find a loophole. You're trying to find some way to go, well, you know, I know that a lot of these Christians think this is wrong or that is wrong, but let me tell you my situation, it's okay. You know what? Paul says, I, I'm not going to run around and be the, you know, the Holy Spirit. All things are permissible. Not all things are helpful. Not all things edify. I'm not going to do anything myself that brings anybody into bondage. And, and, and so, is, is God going to be opening up the earth and swallowing people up who are buying marijuana? No, he's not. Is he going to be having an angel stick his face out of the clouds and go, guys, that's a, you know, that's a drug and stop doing this. Uh, you know, it, he's not. People are going to do it a little bit and try to do that, you know, and, and try to figure out some kind of system where they could do it occasionally or, you know, special occasions, family reunions, you know, New Year's Eve, whatever it is. They're going to try to find it until they, you know, some people will get bit a little bit. Some people will get bit really bad. But the whole time, God's Holy Spirit is, is telling them, you're not in my perfect will. But then you've got to understand that how is God feeling about this? He, he's, he's, he doesn't like it. He, he's, he's not mad at you. He's mad for you. It's like your, your kid, you say, don't touch the barbecue. Get back away. Here, I'm putting this chair. Don't cross that chair. I don't want you to touch the barbecue. And they wait till you're not looking. They run around and touch the barbecue. And you scream at them. And you spank them. You could really care less that they touch the barbecue. It's just, you're so angry that they're in pain. And they're suffering. And that they were foolish. This is how God feels. And so we have these type of moments in the scripture. Jesus goes into the temple twice, and he's just like turning the money and changing the tables over. Got a whip, driving people out of the temple. Says the zeal for his house was eating it up. My father's house is to be a house of prayer. You've made it all, a bunch of dinner thieves. Jesus did that for 30 years growing up and never said a word. But then when he started his ministry and ended his ministry, he, he just... You know, out of nowhere, you see this thing coming. He was feeling that way about it the whole time. And so, again, it, you, you got to realize there's just this heart of God. And it says in Hebrews 10, 31, it says, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You know, God's convicting us, his loving kindness and tender mercies leading us to repentance. He's gently convicting us, knocking on the door. And then eventually one day you come home and there's the paddle out and wham, you know, you're, you're going to be hurting for a while. And it's like, what's going on here? You know, I've been doing this for six months, for six years. And now all of a sudden I'm getting spanked like this. Yeah, the whole time you, you know that that hasn't been pleasing me. The whole time you know that's been a compromise that, that's hindering our relationship. But now I'm telling you, this is not going any further now. 
In Lamentations 3.22, it says, if not for the Lord's mercies, we would all be consumed. But then his compassions, they fell not. So in Genesis 17, God makes it clear. He says, Abraham, this is a covenant between me, you, me and you and your descendants forever. And then he ends that in Genesis 17, verse 9 through 14. He ends it in 14 by saying, if perchance somebody says, I don't want to get circumcised. And they have an uncircumcised male child. That's the responsibility of the parents because the child's only eight days old. He said, this one who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off. That's a nice way of saying be put to death from his people. He has broken my covenant. God, God couldn't have made it clear. This is non-negotiable. But this went on for years, maybe 30 years. This, this might have been a 30-year-old son. We don't know how old he was. But God just says no. And how much more for those in leadership? I mean, God, I mean Abraham, uh, Moses is going to go down and say, Thus saith the Lord, you need to do right with my son. Moses wasn't doing right what was right with his son. Do you see the hypocrisy in that? And do you see there's not going to be power in that? He's going to go down there and only as we're submitted to those above us do we have power. The moment we don't submit, we lose the power. If a guy's in the military and he has his military ID, he can go on to the military base and go to the, the shops or do whatever he can do. But then he gets out of the Navy, okay, and he loses that ID. Can he just go walking on a ship when he wants? Can he act like he's still in the military? If he was an officer, can he put on his uniform now and go boss people around? No longer being in the military? No. The day you, you, you get out from underneath that authority, you no longer have authority. And Moses himself is not under the authority with his son. How is he going to have the power to speak into Pharaoh's life about God's son? He won't. In James 3.1, it says, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. God's going to hold leaders accountable in ways that people that aren't teaching the word. And uh, he makes it clear that you, you need to understand that uh, God takes this serious. When you're standing up saying, thus saith the Lord. In 1 Peter 4, verse 17 and 18, it says this. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if he begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? So think about this. Moses is his child. He's his chosen one. And yet we, we get a momentary glimpse of the judgment of God towards his compromise, towards his lack of obedience. And we're looking at this going, whoa, if the righteous are scarcely saved, 
Where will the person that is a sinner end up that doesn't follow God at all? And it's a reminder to all of us who minister that we have a holy calling. In 2 Timothy 2, verse 19, it says, Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. But in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor, some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful for the master, prepared for every good work. Paul says, look, there are leaders that God just submitted to God in a holy way, and there is a powerful work of God that he can do. And then there's other people that are not really walking in the perfect will of God, not really walking with this sense of holiness and righteousness and understanding what they're calling us in God. And they're in the house and they're being used, but they're a trash can. <laughs> they're a spittoon rather than a, a beautiful vase. So he says to us, he's prompting us and telling Timothy as well to be that vessel for honor. In Colossians 1.10, a verse I've been meditating on that whole prayer out of Colossians that you may walk worthy of the Lord fully pleasing him being fruitful in every good work increasing in the knowledge of God boy that's a great word and that just let's walk in a manner worthy of the Lord let's have this desire to fully be pleasing him in every respect well in verse 27, so Moses now, after this crazy event, heads on forward with Aaron, uh, to, and he spoke to Aaron back in Egypt, and he said, start walking towards Moses, as Moses is walking towards him. And as they're heading that way into the wilderness, they meet, and they went on top of the mountain of God. We're going to be talking about that a lot. They greeted each other with a kiss. And Moses told Aaron all the words the Lord who had sent him and all the signs which he had commanded him. And Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the children of Israel. And Aaron spoke all the words of the Lord that he had spoken to Moses. And he did the signs in the sight of the people. So the people believed. And when uh, they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel and that he had looked on their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. So they're so greatly encouraged. Remember, we read earlier that they were crying out to God because of their bondage. And now they hear of these signs and wonders, the great power of God, the, the fiery bush, and all of these things. They're like, wow, God's doing something here. Well, in chapter 5 now, verse 1, so afterward Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, thus says the Lord God of Israel, let my people go, and they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. This must have been surreal. Moses going back to his old stomping grounds he hadn't been at in 40 years. That would have been interesting, huh? And there he, he stands before Pharaoh on the other side of the, <laughs> the, the, the curtain this time, huh? The other side of things. He's not up on the throne, he, he, you know, next to his dad. Um, he's down below as a nobody. And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord? that I should obey his voice to let Israel go. I did not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. You, you can just see how crazy and indignant he is. First of all, Pharaoh believed himself to be God. 
And then they had all kinds of gods. They had the sun god, Ray. They had the crocodiles. They had all the different animals that they worshipped. And, and, and he's, he's just saying, okay, the god of these slaves, <laughs> the slaves god, I'm supposed to obey. He was just like, are you kidding me? You're, you're going to come and tell me a God I don't know about. I, the Pharaoh of Egypt, need to do what he wants me to do because you said I need to do this. He's like, I, I'm, I don't know him. I'm not going to obey his voice. It's interesting in Romans 1.22, it says, Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into the image made like corruptible man, birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. And in verse 25, exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. But Pharaoh here was right. He didn't know God. He can't obey him. And, and that does, if you, if you don't have knowing God first, but just all these rules and regulation and rituals, that's just going to embitter people. The point was, is that he needed to say, who is God? Remember that happened in, in, in Babylon, and Daniel was able to teach Nebuchadnezzar about who God was. Esther did that with Artaxerxes in the book of Ex. The book of uh, Esther, she told that king who God was. Nehemiah, as he was the cupbearer to the other Artaxerxes, told him, hey, the God of Israel, here's who he is. So then you got the wise men, these kings that came from the east, following the star to come and find out who this king of Israel was going to be that was born in Bethlehem. So Again, to, to, to say that I don't know him, so I'm not accountable to him, that's, that's ridiculous. He does need to know who he is. And once he knows who he is, he needs to obey him. But understand, guys, that God's Holy Spirit is leading every man on earth to himself. In every generation, there's a wonderful little book um, called Eternity in the Heart. And this guy shows all kinds of people groups around the world and how before a missionary ever came and spoke to them, God in various ways had spoken to little people groups in the jungles all over the world about the Messiah. But men know they're not right with God and they know that they're worshiping false gods in rebellion. And they know this isn't the right way, even though they're adamant towards it and often being pushed towards it because of fear. Just a, just a side note. Your children are going to come to the age at one, some point and they're going to say to you, why should I obey God's voice? Why should I follow God just because you're telling me I should or because you're, you decided to do it? How does that automatically imply I do it. I'm 13 years old. I'll decide, you know, what I'm going to do the rest of my life, you know. And, and I, I think that's legitimate because, you know, God doesn't have grandkids. <laughs> he just has kids. 
And this is something they're going to have to eventually wrestle with to make God their God. And in the meantime, you just say, look, like Joshua, for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. As long as God's providing this roof and this food, you're going to follow him as I'm following him with the same convictions. And when that day comes, when you no longer can stand it and you're of age, you can leave. And then you, you're going to make whatever choice you're going to make. But I, I taught my kids very, very young, you know, telling them, you know, someday you're, you're going you're gonna to have this attitude. You know, I understand you're only two years old right now, but listen to me. One day you're going to be a teenager and you're going to say, I don't need to go to church. I don't need the Bible. I don't need to follow God. I, I get it. And that's fine. But you're still going to go to church. You're still going to pray. We're still going to have family devotions. That's not going to stop. When you leave the home, then you do whatever you're going to do. But I'm just telling you now, you do foolish things. I spank your bottom. You have pain. And you remember foolishness equals pain. Because one day, I won't be there to spank you. <laughs> but understand, foolishness equals pain. Whether I'm there or not, this is a fact. God gave you under my care as a child to demonstrate this point. <laughs> But it's true whether I spanked you or not. <laughs> it's true whether I told you or not. And you're going to find when you go out, the truth is in Christ and him only. And why should you follow God? Because he alone is God. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13 to 15, he says, You shall fear the Lord your God and serve him. You shall take oaths in his name. You shall, go, uh, you shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are all around you. For the Lord your God is jealous God among you, lest the anger of the Lord your God be aroused against you and destroy you from the face of the earth. Jesus said when he was tempted in Luke 4, 8, he said, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And so, again, yes, I, I know Pharaoh, <laughs> You don't know who God is. Why should you listen to his voice? Because he alone is God. And to not follow him is ultimate destruction. On the earth, some, but eternally, total. He's the only way for life. And so you say, well, I, I don't know him, so I'm not accountable. It's not true. Romans chapter 1, verse 18 makes it clear. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, listen, so that they will not have excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And then we had read that verse earlier where they turned from worshiping the true cre creator to worshiping the creature and, and just defaming God and his glory because of the stubbornness of their hearts. And so all kinds of testimonies, how God brings us to that end of ourself to say we need God. Now, 
Let's make it clear here. Pharaoh is eventually going to understand that there is only one God. <laughs> he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that Pharaoh is not God. And even though he has supernatural powers, and even though he has uh, sorcerers that have supernatural powers, and they were real, Satan is alive and well. Satan is a powerful individual. Satan can, can do supernatural things, and he can cause his followers to do supernatural things. People, every once in a while, will come, Brian, I know you won't believe this, but I was doing a Ouija board and it worked. Yes, it works. There's real demons. What are you doing? You're playing with fire. Are you wanting to get punished? Just the demons themselves will backfire on you, man. Don't. Yes, I know there's a supernatural world. It doesn't reveal itself too much in the Western world where uh, Satan's got us blinded in other ways, but it's evident in, in third world countries where he intimidates them by that. Well, in verse 4, the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people from their work? Get back to your labor. And Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are many now, and you make them rest from their labor. The same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their officers, saying, you shall no longer give the people straw to make brick as before. Let them go and gather straw for themselves, and you shall lay on them the quota of bricks which they made before. You shall not reduce it. For they are idle. Therefore they cry out saying, let us go and sacrifice to our God. It, it, it's interesting to me that, that he basically says, I'm interpreting you wanting to go three days into the wilderness and worship and sacrifice to God as you're not working hard enough and you can do more. You have energy left. So you need to start doing more. And then he's just being cruel to them. Rather than the Egyptians providing the straw, I'm not going to go into it, but the straw would mix in with the, the, the various ingredients they put in, and, and it actually has a, a point as it hardens, the, the chemicals of the straw released within to the, um, the various types of brick they would make and make it harder and harder. And it is interesting uh, that they have documented that there is a series of buildings that don't have sufficient straw in them. And uh, they're in Egypt today. But it's interesting that his, his attitude was, it would be a waste. It would be a waste. Don't spend your time worshiping. Use that time to work. People think that way, don't they? I'll go to church next week, next week, next week. Well, I did go five months ago. I'm, I'm due to go again another month or so. Yeah, I go down to that church and it, it's a waste. Or you, you see that. It's like service starts at 10 and people are like, oh, yeah, I got, I got 15 more minutes because, you know, they're just in there singing and doing announcements and taking the offering. Yeah, you know, that's a waste. I'll just get there for the sermon and, and head on out. It's, it's like, hold it. <laughs> there, there's, there's supposed to be a different heart in this. It's, it's not an idle thing to go and to sacrifice and to worship God. It's interesting that in Mark chapter 14, 
There's a story where a lady is using very costly oil of spikenard and washing Jesus' feet and putting it upon his head. And we know from the Gospel of John that it's Judas who got angry and indignant and said, this is a waste. This should have been taken and, and sold it and, you know, do something practical and useful like feeding the poor. You see people that today, I used to go to church, now I just give my money to the Red Cross. Yeah, I used to go to church, but now I'm just involved with the Lung Association and, you know, doing a lot of volunteering down there. Worshiping God is, is invaluable to me, but doing something practical like taking care of the poor, now that's, that's spiritual worship. You'd be better off to quit singing those songs and studying the Bible and just get out there and help the poor. Then you'd be doing more better with your time. This is, the, this is the carnal mind. This is the unbelieving mind. This is the immature Christian's mind that basically says, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give this nonchalant attitude. There's not this desire for three days. I'm going to determine and focus and go out and sacrifice and worship God. And, and he basically is punishing them, saying, you need to get those ideas out of your head. And I'm going to knock them out of your head. Well, as you know the story, Pharaoh says to these officers, not only do they need to keep doing the quota they've been doing and find their own straw, but we're going to up the quota. And when they didn't do that, the officers started, in verse 14 it says, they started being beaten. And they come before Pharaoh in verse 15 and to 19 and they say, we're your servants. They say it three times. We're, we're here for you. We're doing everything you want us to do. Of course, we know today, right, everything the Pharaohs would have you build was buildings to themselves. It was for their glory, for their deity, for their legacy. So in essence, he's saying, you want to worship another God besides me. You want to glorify him, but you don't want to glorify me. I'm going to tell you, you're going to glorify me even more. And you're going to be so exhausted, you won't be able to glorify this God of your slave, this slave God of yours. And it says when they told Pharaoh, hey, we'll do whatever. We're here. You were your servants. And Pharaoh wasn't lightening up. It says in verse 19, that these officers realized, uh-oh, we are in trouble. And so as they came out, in verse 20, from Pharaoh, they met Moses and Aaron, and they stood there, and they said to them, let the Lord look at you and judge you, because you've made us abhorrent in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, and you've put a sword in their hand to kill us. Now, you remember in the few verses before when Moses and Aaron showed up and all these guys are like, whoa, God's heard our cries and God's meeting us and God's delivering us. And oh, it's so wonderful. You know, have some food. Let me give you a hug, Moses. You know, hey, those are your kids. You know, let's, you know, he's sort of the hero and now he's the zero. <laughs> of course, this would be the first of many, many times of them not caring for Moses's leadership. Remember, Moses didn't want to come before. And now these guys are just pounding him because God's not coming through the way they thought God wanted him to come through. 
Moses is going to hear that for the next 40 years, isn't he? The stinking manna, the stinking desert. We're not going to cross over there. There's giants over there. Guys, let's get back to Egypt. There's onions and leeks and a lot more bad breath things over there. Well, it's interesting here that this is, this is a status quo thing, guys. That when God begins to deliver his children, what happens? Satan deepens in with his claws. In Ephesians 6, it tells us we do not fight against flesh and blood, do we? But against principalities and powers. And I've seen this many times where people, they think, oh, I'm coming to Christ, my marriage will get healed, and it gets worse. I remember back in, in when I was a youth pastor many, many years ago, back when I was 19, and these two girls, their dad was a drunk and beating their mom and even abusing them at times. And, and I said, well, you know, let's come early and let's just pray for your dad. And we started, and his dad kept getting worse and worse and worse until they finally said, stop praying. We can't tolerate it. And, and I'm just like, yeah, this is, you know, how is it? Well, well we tried it out. We quit praying one day, and, and my dad got better. And we started praying again, and he got worse again. I'm like, yeah, this is, this is a real spiritual battle. Satan wants to discourage you out the door. He wants to quench you out from step number one because that's his plan. He doesn't want to let it germinate. He doesn't want to let there be fruitfulness. What does Moses do in verse 22 and 23? Moses returned to the Lord and said, Lord, why have you brought this trouble on me? Why have you, not, why have you sent me here to begin with? Since I came here, it's been nothing but horrible. I came to speak in your name and, and all that's happened uh, is done evil to these people. Neither have you delivered your people at all. This has gotten much, much worse, not better. Of course, Moses, what did I say to you before you headed out? Moses' heart's going to be hard. He's not going to let you go. But Moses doesn't seem to remember that at all. But man, I can tell you, I can relate. <laughs> if you're a parent, you know how, you know, the more you try to bless your kids sometimes, the more they feel cursed. And as a leader, Sometimes you're trying to help people and you're giving them the right counsel, but they just will take what you said and twist it and do whatever they want to do in their self-will and come back going, man. And it's, it's a tough place to be as a leader, to be the wall. As a parent, you just anchor in, stand fast, and just say, you know, the, you know be the wall. The kids will crash up against you and... As a leader, the people, you just got to stand firm and just say, God, you've called me. I'm doing it because you've called me. I'm not doing it because it's comfortable or even successful at times. It doesn't look successful all the time. There's times of lean times that, that happens, and you just got to stand firm and wait for the salvation of God. Well, Lord, we come before you now as we're meditating on these things and looking at these things that you are speaking to some of us here tonight about some issues where we are compromising. You've not made a giant screaming point of it. You didn't shake our life up. You didn't let an earthquake devour us. And, but yet, your still small voice convicts us all the time. This is not right. This is not what I have for you. This is not holy as your Lord God is holy. This is weakening you, not strengthening you. And you are speaking into our lives to wake up and to be 
men and women of God after your own heart. And we know that you do spank your kids. Every one of your kids, you will spank them and deal with them because of your great love for us. Lord, don't, don't let us push you to that point. Lord, we just ask right now that we would stop and let your loving kindness and tender mercies be enough. Lord, we ask that that tender, gentle breeze would be enough. We ask that the still, small voice would be enough and that we would just be crushed under that gentle voice of correction and there wouldn't need to be any reason to get the paddle out. And Lord, we, if there's some discouraged here tonight saying, man, I'm doing what God wants me to do and it's not successful. We know, Lord, that you got it in your hands. You have a plan and you, that plan is to go through deserts. That plan is to obey you and it just seems like obeying you is making things worse. But we're going to follow you because you are God. There is no other. You alone are the way, the truth, and the life. And we know this to be the truth, and we're going to follow you because who else has words of eternal life but you, Lord Jesus? In Jesus' precious name we all pray. Amen and amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week. In the